Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole.
Take your copy of God's Word, please, and open again to the book of Joshua. You'll find the seventh chapter, Joshua chapter 7. Stephen Davey once told the following story in a message that he once preached. It seems that pastor and author John Ortberg wrote about our sinful human nature and the need for confession in a humorous story from his own family. At the time, his daughter, Laura, was four years old and his daughter, Mallory, was two and a half years old. So get that picture in your mind, a family, pastor's family, the one daughter's four, the other is two and a half. And he writes, many years ago, we bought our first really nice piece of furniture. It was a pink sofa, but for the money we paid for it, we called it, it was called a mauve sofa. The man at the sofa store told us how to take care of it, and so we took it home. And since we had small children at the time, the number one rule in our house at that moment became, don't sit on the mauve sofa. Don't play near the mauve sofa. Don't eat around the mauve sofa. Don't breathe on the mauve sofa. On every other chair in the house, you may freely sit, but on the mauve sofa, you may not sit. For the day you sit there on, you shall surely die. <laughs> but then one day came the fall. There appeared on the mauve sofa a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. He said, my wife called the man at the sofa factory and told him what happened and he told her the bad news. So she assembled our children in the living room to look at the stain on the sofa. She said, children, do you see that? That's a stain. That's a red stain. That's a red jelly stain. And the man at the sofa store says, it's not coming out for all eternity. Do you know how long eternity is, children? Eternity is how long we're going to sit here until one of you tells me which one of you put that red jelly stain on the sofa. And there they were, those two little girls, and they just sat there. And finally, two and a half year old Mallory, she cracked and she said, Laura did it. <laughs> Laura said, I did not. And then it was dead silence for the longest time. And John Ortberg said, I knew that none of them would confess putting the stain on the sofa because they'd never seen their mother that mad in their entire lives. And I knew they wouldn't confess because if they did, they would spend eternity in time out. But he also said, I knew they wouldn't confess because, in fact, it was I. I was the one that got the red jelly stain on the sofa and I wasn't saying nothing, not one word. Stephen Davey was relating these stories to the truth is we've all stained the sofa somewhere, somehow. Our hearts are stained daily. Our hands are stained often. Our consciences are stained repeatedly. Red stains, like crimson, is how Isaiah said it. But unlike many frustrated and angry mothers, God already knows. God knows everything. And He knows who did what. When and where. If you were uh, with us last week, you know, may remember we were doing a series called New Beginnings. And um, 
One of the things we need to do when it comes to a new beginning is we need to deal with our sin. In fact, it's one of the keys to having a new beginning, to deal with the sin in our life. Now, sin is not a word that uh, our society likes to use anymore. We don't like to talk about sin. In fact, we don't even like the word sin. Um, one fellow I read said lying is a credibility gap or being economical with the truth. Deceit is uh, getting along in your business relationships. Adultery is a harmless escapade or having an affair. Uh, stealing is helping yourself to the perks of a job. Embezzlement is creative accounting. And, and selfishness is not standing up for my rights. In fact, today, beloved, we live in a society and a culture where sin is not only practiced, it is celebrated. It is rejoiced in. It is flaunted. Um, it is rejoiced in. Sin is not taken as seriously as it should. Someone said that treating sin lightly is like stroking the head of a tiger and, and saying, nice kitty, nice kitty. The problem is though you do that for a while, one of these days that tiger is going to turn on you and hurt you and might even kill you. Sin is not a, a rubber snake. Sin is a rattlesnake that is dangerous and full of poison and will hurt you and kill you. Erwin Lutzer said this about sin. He said, when we tolerate sin, we set in motion a domino effect that can ultimately lead to our ruin. When we allow sin, one sin, to have free reign in our lives, it's like burning incense in a dormitory. I won't ask you if anybody here ever did that, but think about burning incense in a dormitory. He says, no matter how many towels you push under the door, within a short while it can be smelled in the hallways and assume that aroma of that incense it, it wafts into the hallway and the elevator and the next floor. And, and that's how sin works. It cannot be neatly confined and, and kept within parameters. It begins to spread and impact in so many ways. In fact, jot this reference down. James 1, 14 and 15 says, But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown brings forth death. That's sin. If we're going to have a new beginning, a fresh start, we've got to deal with the sin in our life. And we see a sad example of that here in the book of Joshua. And a man by the name of Achan. Say his name with me, would you? Achan. Say it again. Achan. All right, because some of y'all are nodding off, I think, and you're drifting away, so I want you to stay with me. You'll find his story in Joshua Chapter 7. Before we read it, though, let me allow, allow me to point out that the first word of the chapter is the word but. But the children of Israel. So we need a little context. You know, chapter 7 comes after chapter 6. Everybody got everybody following, tracking with me? And, and I mention that because of the but at the beginning, but also Joshua chapter 6 records the wonderful story of the victory at Jericho. Remember, they marched around the walls. The walls came down. There was this great victory that took place. And so Joshua chapter 6 is a chapter of victory, uh, a chapter where there is great um, uh, working and moving of the Lord in a wonderful way. And they're making progress in conquering the promised land. It's interesting. We're in Exodus right now in our Sunday school lessons. And now we're looking on Sunday mornings at the conquest of what ultimately they're aiming toward. But chapter 6 is a chapter of victory. But chapter 7 is a chapter of defeat. 
In fact, let's read the chapter, then we're going to draw some lessons. So, if you have your copy of God's Word, you're in Joshua chapter 7. Look along with me as I read, or listen carefully as I read. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things, so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Bethaven on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. Verse 4. So about 3,000 men went up from there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as um, Chebarim and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we'd been content and dwell on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? But verse 10 says, So the Lord said to Joshua, Get up! Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned. And they've also transgressed My covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived. And they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies but turned their backs before their enemies because they become doomed to destruction. Neither, watch this, neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Get up. Sanctify the people and say, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. Verse 14. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families. And the family which the Lord takes shall come by households. And the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man. Then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has because he's transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he's done a disgraceful thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes. And the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the clan of Judah, took them by the family of the Zorites, and he brought the family of the Zorites man by man. And Zabdi was taken. Then he brought his household man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah was taken. Now Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, Give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me now what you've done. Do not hide it from me. Verse 20. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned 
I've sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I've done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, a piece of clothing, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And there they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones. And they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Now, I think the lessons that we need to look at today are evident, but the story is pretty plain, isn't it? We all track along what's going on. It's a horrible Horrible thing that Achan did, and the result is horrible. But I want to draw just four or five lessons from this sad story today, and uh, then we'll, we'll be on our way. I want to point out, first of all, beloved, that a victory yesterday doesn't guarantee a victory today. A victory yesterday doesn't guarantee a victory today. Joshua, the children of Israel, are riding high. They've just watched God bring down the walls of Jericho. And one of the dangers of a great victory is that we'll let our guard down and we'll begin to live on yesterday's successes and we'll forget that we have an enemy that is real and is formidable. As Christians, we have an enemy, Satan. The Bible says he walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And if the news were to go out this afternoon that a traveling circus came through and a lion escaped in Anson County, especially in the Red Hill community, you would approach your vehicle a lot differently after service, wouldn't you, if you approached it at all? Well, we forget that we have an enemy and there they are. They have been riding high in a great weekend retreat or revival meeting to make us think that we too, we're riding high spiritually and it can cause us to let our spiritual defenses weaken. And we forget about our enemy. You remember the story of Elijah. I was just reading it the other day. One moment he's defeating and killing the, the false prophets of Baal and the next moment he's running for his life from Jezebel. And here we have the children of Israel. Jericho lies in ruins. And so why worry about this place called Ai? But you see, a victory yesterday does not guarantee a victory today. It was November the 16th, 1776. Fort Washington fell to the advancing British troops. And General Washington was forced to retreat. Well, securing his victory, General Howe chose not to pursue the Continental Army but ordered his men into their winter quarters instead. But on Christmas night, Christmas night, Washington, you remember, ferried a portion of his troops back across the Delaware and mounted a surprise attack. 
And the British were caught off guard. And more than a thousand soldiers were taken prisoner. On the heels of victory, the British, they suffered a stinging defeat. And so, beloved, we've got to remember that just because we had a victory yesterday, that doesn't guarantee a victory today. We've got to be very, very careful in our walk with the Lord. But there's a second lesson here, and that's very simple. Pride and prayerlessness are easily practiced. Pride and prayerlessness are easily practiced. We might think, well, duh, we understand that. Of course they're easy. It takes more effort to pray than not pray, doesn't it? It takes more energy to be humble and and make a humble choice than sometimes to make an arrogant choice. Uh, Humility is surely more difficult, but it seems that Joshua and the leaders here, they took the easier road. Did you notice that he sends these spies out to spy on and scope out AI? Look back at verse 3. They returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up. But let about two or three thousand men go up to attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. Now you would think if there was one man who would be careful with the reports of spies, it would have been Joshua. (laughs) You think about his own history. He would be careful with the reports of the spies and listening to spies. But here it seems that he received it. And it looks like there's some self-confidence in the report. We don't need all the people. AI's not that big. Let some stay back. Let some take it easy. And the amazing thing is, Joshua listened to them. And verse 4 says he sent 3,000, about 3,000 men. No prayer is mentioned. No seeking of the will of the Lord. You might be thinking, well, maybe he prayed, you know, and the Bible just doesn't say he prayed. Well, maybe so, but don't you think that if he had prayed about it, the Lord would have said, Joshua, there's sin in the camp. I'm not so sure he did pray about it. I'm not so sure he did seek the will of the Lord. Um, Prayerlessness causes trouble. Let me ask you, let's be honest for a moment. Have you ever regretted uh, stopping and taking time to pray about something? Is, is it, have you ever had a regret about that? You know, you take a moment, you get me, and I'm just going to stop and pray. Have you ever lived to regret that decision? And you went later and said, well, I wish I hadn't taken that time to pray. Anybody ever done that? You regret it taking time to pray. Nobody? Let me ask you another question. Have you ever regretted not praying about something? Have you ever thought this or said this, boy, I wish before I did this or that? that I'd stopped and prayed about that thing. You see, pride and prayerlessness here, beloved, played a contributing factor to this awful defeat. But the main contributor was the sin of this man named Achan. By the way, it's interesting, his name means trouble. And he brought trouble in Israel that day. Which brings to the third lesson, our sin will impact other people. Our sin will impact others. You might think that your sin is private. It doesn't impact anybody but yourself. And Achan probably thought the same thing. But you look back just through biblical history. Wearsby noted that never underestimate the amount of damage one person can do outside the will of God. Abraham's disobedience in Egypt almost cost him his wife. David's disobedience in taking an unauthorized census led to the death of 70,000 people. Jonah's refusal to obey God almost sank a ship. Our sin does impact people today. 
And look at what this sin cost, beloved. It led to defeat. It led to discouragement. It led even to death. They were defeated by the people of Ai. Thirty-six of the Israelite soldiers were killed in the battle. And it brought about such despair and discouragement. Joshua was just crying out, Oh God, why did you bring us out here to destroy us? Why did you just let us stay on the other side? Because there was discouragement, defeat, crushing discouragement. And furthermore, this sin, it cost Achan everything he had. I slowed down and read that. I hope you called it. It cost him everything he had. Everything! All of it! Even his family. They were stoned and burned as well. You say, why in the world? So I know your mind's thinking like mine. Why in the world would God kill his family? Probably because they were accomplices in the sin. Why? Well, where was the stuff hidden? In the ground under Achan's tent. And more than likely, they saw it and they kept their mouth shut. But even if not, our sin impacts others, whether that's fair or not. Think about that. Our sin impacts other people, loved ones. Pay a visit this afternoon to a drunkard's house or a drug addict's home. Look at his wife and children. Some of them battered and bruised. Look into the eyes of the hungry children who have nothing to eat because all the money has been spent on drugs. Talk to the husband or wife who now has a sexually transmitted disease because of their spouse's uh, secret sin. Talk with faithful pastors who give all they have, blood, sweat, and tears, to tirelessly try to build a church while there are other people in that church seeking to tear it down and tear it down and tear it down. Our sin impacts other people. It impacts other people. We're part of the body of Christ. And when one member suffers, we all suffer. Our sin impacts others. But there's still another lesson. And it's an important lesson. Beloved, hidden sin is not hidden from God. We can hide our sin from everybody else, but we'll never hide it from God. Write down this reference, Hebrews 4.13 and there's no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hebrews 4.13. Think about it. We estimate there were somewhere between two and a half to three million people in the camp at Israel at this time. Only one man had the accursed things in his tent. Nobody else knew about it. He knew about it. Maybe his family knew about it. But beloved, God knew about it. And it's interesting how God went about identifying who it was in the camp. Did you ever think about that? He, he calls them by their groups, the tribes, and he just keeps narrowing down and narrowing down and narrowing down. What do you think was going through Achan's mind as he was standing there? Can you see him literally just, just sweating, pouring down his forehead there, shaking in his sandals, knowing we're getting closer and closer and closer and closer and closer, knowing that you're the one. They're looking for. You're the one who's guilty. You're the one that's sinned. And the question is, why did God go about it this way? I mean, why not just open up the earth and swallow Achan and all his belongings whole like he'd done before with other people? Why did God go through this process of narrowing down and narrowing down and closer and closer and closer? Well, it's been suggested at least two reasons. Number one. This served as a reminder to everybody there that day and everybody who's read the story since, including us, 
about the seriousness of sin. Sin is serious business. It is dangerous and it's deadly. But someone else also suggested that maybe one of the reasons that God went about it this way is he was giving Achan time to confess and say, I am the one. Would God have been gracious and spared his life? Of course, we don't know that. But he didn't confess voluntarily. But he did confess eventually. Verse 20, Joshua had asked him there. In verse 20, Achan answered Joshua, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I've done. And he gives the details. Notice verse 21. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, he saw an Armani suit, 200 shekels of silver, cash, a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, very valuable. I coveted them and I took them. And there they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver's under it. If you'd like to mark your Bible, you might want to underline these words. I saw, I coveted, I took. I saw, I coveted, and took. Sounds like Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, doesn't it? Sounds like David walking down the roof seeing Bathsheba. I saw, I coveted, I took, and then I tried to cover it up. Can I just be blunt with you? That's dumb. But we all do it. We're all dumb at times, aren't we? You know why? Proverbs 18, 13. Look at that verse with me. Would you read it out loud with me? It's on the screen in front of you. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. You can try to cover your sin, but you're not going to prosper. We've got to remember something very important today, beloved. If you're a child of God, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God is not going to allow you to sin successfully and get away with it. No questions asked. He's going to convict you of that sin. He's going to challenge you about that sin because He wants to free you of that sin. He wants to forgive you of that sin. He wants to put you in a right fellowship with Him again because sin hinders our fellowship with God. Think about it. When you're in sin... Sad to say, you don't really have an appetite for the Word of God in prayer and those sorts of things. You're, you're, you're resisting that. And God wants to work in our hearts and lives. And the Holy Spirit, He convicts us of sin. By the way, can I just say something very important? If you can sin and sin and sin and sin and sin and live in sin and it never ever bothers you, more than likely you are not saved. You're not saved. Because a child of God does not get away with their sin forever. God is going to convict you of your sin. It's going to bother you. He's going to convict you to bring you to the point of confession and repentance and restoration. And if you never are bothered by your sin, you need to get saved. Now here's the reality of it. Those of us who are saved, we still sin. We don't want to. But we still sin. First John chapter one, verse eight. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There's a chance we've already sinned today. 
You say, we've been at church all morning. Yeah, you may have sinned on the way. I've got young kids too at home. You may have sinned when you got here. I may have sinned. What are some examples? Pride. Can't believe she wore that. I'd never be caught dead in that. Gossip. Lust. Greed. And we've been in church all day. We haven't even got in the parking lot yet. We all fail. We all sin. And that harms our fellowship with God. Now, we're still children of God, but it harms our fellowship. And so 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's the lovely thing about it, beloved. God knows that we are weak and frail and even as His children, if we know Christ as Savior, we still mess up in sin. And He says, listen, you confess that, say the same thing I say about it, and I'll forgive you, I'll restore you. We can walk in sweet fellowship. David prayed it this way in Psalm 51, verse 12. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. You know, beloved, I found, I was taught long ago, and I've also found it to be true of my own experience. Some of the most miserable people you'll ever meet are backslidden Christians. Backslidden Christians. You know why? Because they're stuck. They can't fully enjoy sin if they're a true child of God. And yet they can't fully enjoy the things of God because of the sin in their life. And that's why backslidden Christians can be some of the meanest people you'll ever meet on the face of the earth. Because they're resisting the Spirit's working in their life. And yet they don't have to stay there. They can confess that sin, be restored in their fellowship with God, and once again have joy in their Christian life. J. Vernon McGee, he tells a story about uh, Mel Trotter. Mel Trotter um, told the story about um, the time he spent on the board of the Pacific Garden Mission. Uh, Pacific Garden Missions in uh, Chicago, I believe it is. Uh, they're famous for their uh, unshackled radio program. You ever heard that before? And on the board was a doctor who, when he prayed, you know, some people have the same prayers. You ever notice that? Don't don't look around. But you know, some people pray like you put a record on just the same prayer over and over. And he noticed that this doctor, when he prayed, said this: "Lord, if I've sinned, forgive my sins. Lord, if I've sinned, forgive my sins." And, and Mel Trotter got tired of hearing it. Finally, he went to the doctor and said to him, listen, doc, you say, if I sin, don't you know whether or not you've sinned? The doctor said, well, I, I guess I do. Well, don't you know what your sin is? No, the doctor said, I don't know what it is. And so Mel Trotter, in a wonderful moment of wisdom, said, well, if you don't know, then guess at it. <laughs> you know what happened? The next time the doctor prayed, Mel said, he guessed it the first time. Now, what about you? Is there any secret sin in your life? Do you need to guess at it today? Is there anything that you're living with, trying to cover up, trying to coddle, trying to justify, trying to rationalize, trying to relabel, and yet you know it's wrong and it's sin? And it grieves the Holy Spirit. And it hinders you in your walk with Christ. And it harms others. 
and it's not a good thing. And you know the Scripture says you're not going to prosper if you keep covering it up. Why don't you guess at it today? Why don't you drag it out today? Don't wait. Don't wait for it to get to the point of death. But come now and just confess it and say, Lord, I agree with you. This is wrong. It's sin. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Help me not to do it again. Confess it and forsake it. You say, what if I fail again? Then do it again. Come to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I failed. Please help me. Strengthen me. And the Lord is the one who can help you to have victory over that sin in your life. He who covers his sin will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Do you need to come today and find mercy and find forgiveness and find joy? I invite you to come. Father, examine our hearts now through your Holy Spirit. I pray if anybody here does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, your Spirit would convict them of their sin and bring them to saving faith. And then, Lord, as most of the message has been for those of us who do know you, I pray your Holy Spirit to examine our hearts and put his finger on anything that's not right. And, Lord, help us to quickly, willingly confess it and forsake it. May we leave this place filled with joy in knowing that we're walking in a right fellowship with you. Have your will, have your way in this invitation, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need to be saved today, we'd love to talk with you about that. We're not here to embarrass you. We're here to help you. Just come and meet us here at the front. We'd love to pray with you and help you. If you want to just come and pray, we would invite you to do that. If you'd like someone to pray with you, let me know. Or you can just come and kneel on your own. Why not have a fresh start? Why not have a true new beginning? Drag that sin out and say, Lord, I ask your forgiveness. I ask your cleansing. I confess it. I acknowledge it today. Help me to walk in victory. 552, my Jesus, I love you. Let's stand.